Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacey. Good day, and welcome to The Art of Software. I'm your host, Martin Lacey. In today's show, we'll speak with product visionary and entrepreneur, seasoned business leader, Manoj Chawla, about vision-led product development. We'll look at what vision-led product development means and explore how to build a product vision itself, a consensus around it, a roadmap for it, and how you ensure it maps to true value in the eyes of your customers. Manoj is an entrepreneur and non-executive director, consultant, trainer, mentor, and coach. He's an avid coach and mentor to many businesses and startups. He has developed a unique and holistic methodology for building and turning around businesses and runs courses on designing for persuasion, designing business models, Eureka, innovation, and product design, organized for success, and designing for happiness, a key aspect in, in that for everyone. He's also incubated a number of new businesses, and as an acknowledged thought leader, innovator, and change agent, he has built and, and implemented some of the largest systems and products. He has acted as a virtual CEO to build one of the largest student social media companies going to raise $18 million, worked with startup, start, worked with and started numerous startups in a voice recognition, online food, ordering, and real estate valet storage space, just to name a few. He's also worked at C-level roles in blue chip companies such as BT, Diago, ICI, and consultancies such as Price Waterhouse and Accenture. So please welcome my special guest and my good friend, Manoj. Hi, Manoj. Welcome to the show. Hello, Martin. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, it's awesome to have you on the show today, and I'm really excited to explore this topic and uh, try and help our our uh, listeners build that vision, that momentum behind the concepts that they have percolating in their head. Maybe they've dabbled in a few things um, and need to collect the right team, or you know, just really not knowing where to start. Maybe they're halfway through it and, and need a restart. So. I thought it would be a great idea for us to talk about that whole idea of building the vision and understanding it. So um, why, what do you say we just dive right in? I'm ready when you are. Awesome. So in your view, Manoj, uh, how would you define vision? Uh, the vision in terms of product development, product roadmap. All right. Okay. Uh, Martin, most people have a vision about how they think the world will be different with their product. Right. You know, how, how the world will be better. Now, it doesn't necessarily come down to what color the product will be, because that that's the journey that the roadmap establishes for you. And there may be many variants of it, but you have a concept of how the world will be different once your product is in service. And that doesn't matter whether it's a plane flying a new route or doing it cheaper or the customer having a better experience um, or, or whether you're, you're trying to change a, a process on how democracy works. 
So do you, do so, you kind of think of it more of uh, an, an impact-based um, way to look at your products and, and try to see the vision from that aspect? Uh, I think most people tend to have a view about how the things would be different. They may not have always total clarity about what the the features of the product might be right. or what the business model is because that's the journey. You know, like today I was having a meeting with uh, Lord Putnam and one of the projects he's working on is democracy and how can you record to have better democracy and more transparent democracy. And that doesn't work, right? But the thing is, it starts with that kind of feeling inside. You know, Christopher Columbus thinks, hey, there's a different way to go around to India. And he discovers, I mean, he didn't know what he was going to find at the other end. Right, right. You kind of have a general sense that the world will be better off. And you may not have even thought about the side effects. You know, when, when they said, okay, we'll come up with a horseless carriage known as the car, they didn't necessarily think about pollution or road traffic. No, and some no, of the of side not. effects. Or maybe you know. not. <laughs> I guess you think about the traffic if you had that, you know, grandiose vision of, you know, outstanding success. You know, and, and, you know, people forget that, you know, Microsoft may have been the biggest vision. The biggest thing is you tend to get started with a vision. It's your starting point. It's, it's the engine that drives you. It's the hunger as much, you know. But the thing is, do you think Bill Gates knew that Microsoft would be the, one of the largest and most powerful companies in the world when he started the journey? No, you know, of course not. Do, yeah. do, do, do you think he envisaged the internet and and all the things? Because what's happened is Microsoft is not just the vision of 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 Bill Gates or Paul Allen. It has become the vision of successive employees who have built other products and services, whether it's Excel or Word or or uh, speech recognition or whatever. And some of those experiments have been failed, but they're still modified the, the thing because every company, like every country, is a work in progress. Right, yes, yeah. Okay, but what tends to happen is once you have the clarity and you start working it through, you will put in, and I call it the vision of one-third. So you'll sit down and say, this is core to what I think the product is about. And as you explain it, the team will add their one-third of the DNA and their suppliers and other people. So visions are always things that are built on. So the, the, the entrepreneur starts with, uh, with the foundation of what it will be, okay? And, or the customer, if the customer has led and said, design a building. But they don't necessarily have it down to the nth detail. Right. Yeah. So would you? And you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't. You know, as Napoleon says, that you may make the best plan in the world, but in the heat of the battle, it changes. Right. Yes. So that kind of leads me to that, you know, uh, distinction between the product um, vision and the product itself. Yeah. You you seem to be um, percolating that idea a bit, where you know the the vision is this larger conceptual thing with idea of, of uh, the benefits and, and not necessarily specific features. Absolutely. And then the Absolutely. product itself is some sort of realization of that vision. Absolutely. So you may start with an idea that you visualize people having a better car journey with an autonomous car, but you haven't necessarily visualized, you know, 
what processor it will use or how it will drive or whether it will have a steering wheel or not. And there's probably numerous discussions happening, you know, um, you know, like when the electric car comes out, do you think people had worked out that you needed to put a loudspeaker and simulate the noise of a, a car engine as we did the post uh, right. earlier this week? Yes, you know, yeah. It wasn't worked out to that detail. And, and some of it is, the, the richer it has the customer's vision about how they then visualize using the product, the more the product adapts. So the visions are all layered you know, think of it as laminates building on top of each other and getting polished on each layer. Right. And that, that, that you know, is uh, kind of one of the things, kind of a, take a little segue here, but it, with building software products, you know, it's the kernel of the idea is there, but it, sometimes it's all the features and uh, capability and extensions over many, many iterations that make it not only uh, compelling and unique, but true intellectual property. It, it takes a great deal of effort for someone else to try and replicate its depth and breadth after that, those many iterations. Yeah, and, and usually successful products, the layers build on top. So, you know, uh, Rob Glazer used to have an expression that I loved. The first version has always got to be good enough to criticize. It means yeah. the customer cares enough about it that he wants to improve it. Oh, I love that. That, right. that that really is that that resonates right and and a product that is continually being adapted i mean excel started in 1994 and it has added you know it brought in from brio the pivot tables so right. those ideas get added into your your features even if they weren't originally designed because you didn't visualize in 2020 all the different features that are now in excel right of course Okay, but it was good enough to build on. But they also had a strategy on how to dis displace Lotus. So they said the original version would run all the Lotus macros. I don't think people remember Lotus 1, 2, 3 oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so, so there was a strategy on how to displace it. Because your definition of what you want is always fixed in terms of spreadsheets as they were then. Right. You know, and they adapt in the same way that languages modify. You know, old English has gone through how many iterations, and then at, as it has spread around the world, you have American English and Indian English and yes. Irish English and English. Oh, and all English. the words coming in from every other language that language. sounds like another language, but it's now English. Right, and then some places have a very codified structure about language and structure and some are more fluid. So if you look at it, Apple is a very codified structure and ecosystem compared to where Microsoft started. In fact, the weaknesses of the original PC, if you remember the interrupts, were used by the people. So people end up using backdoors and, and features and weaknesses to add their own bit to it. Yes, yeah. Exploitation and experimentation was the key. Yeah, so so it, it kind of depends, you know, like even when you build a building and, and uh, you know, some buildings last forever, like, like the pyramids, and they don't go through any modification. And then there's other bu buildings that have to be repurposed as people's lifestyles changes. You know, do you think people thought about having a projector room when they were building palaces or, or, or uh, uh, an office in the house or... You know what I mean? 
Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you bring that kind of thought up, my immediate uh, uh, thing I kept uh, thought of was um, the uh, projectors, visual projectors. We used to use them in business for you know showing off, you know, um, uh, whatever you needed to uh, to a large audience. But now those those same projectors are at home and replacing TVs. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and and you know if you look at it, even the engines in them have changed. So whether it's LCD or or uh, uh, 3D, uh, uh, you know the text DLP, and even yep. within that, whether it's laser or whether it's light or a halogen bulb, right? So the form factor and the technology inside will change as our knowledge grows. Because well, vision, oh, the original vision, remains intact. Yeah, it's its use evolves and gets better. Hopefully, yeah. The, and and we call that a process of idealization, where you improve the benefits and reduce the side effects, and that's where where the electric car is heading. So right. you're sitting down and let's get rid of the side effects like pollution or traffic by having autonomous cars or you know all the other things. Because very often when you build a structure in the process of idealization you often end up building um, things that weren't originally required. So if you think about it, when, when you first designed a coat hook, you typically needed a hammer and a nail, and that became version one. It ex- used existing door. <laughs> then the next iteration got rid of the hammer by making it a self-adhesive thing. And the third iteration actually gets rid of the product altogether. So a good instance is, Hard disk storage. So you started with, first of all, having large uh, mechanical drives. Then you moved to solid-state drives and smaller drives, which is making it smaller, making it faster, making it cheaper. And then you said, well, do we actually need a physical store? Let's put it all in the network. Right. So that's that's all idealized because you don't actually want to own the the product. (laughs) And the cloud, absolutely. So ownership underneath it, a product is there about doing something. So, right. so, so you know, you know, like Microsoft have their own version of becoming a service business. But every product, even a piece of jewelry, is is giving something, as in a feel good factor or impressing somebody. Right, okay. and that, I guess that's part of part of the 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 vision. If it's a good vision for the product, or a good representation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what is it you're really trying to do? What's the benefit? either emotional or tangible right. that you're trying to do, which will vary between a business or, or not. And and the user has to visualize that product in their life for them to acquire it. So, so how... Uh, sorry, go ahead, Minoj. Okay, look, I'll, t- I'll tell you a very interesting story. Um, when, when I worked in... Uh, when I was a child... Um, in our family business, we ran an exhibition, and we're selling these beautiful hand-inlaid tables. Yes. And everybody would come and admire it, but nobody would buy it. And my father did the typical thing of cutting the price down. Right. Still nobody bought it. And then I asked the people, what was wrong with the product? Was it the finish? Was it the price? They said, no, we just can't imagine it in our house. And then I flipped 
to thinking about Irish houses in those days, and they had a concept of mahogany tables and very traditional, and they couldn't imagine. And you go to any housewife. And then another time, uh, when I worked in BT and I was moving departments, I suggested we had six free PCs. And they were brand new because I was moving departments and my dev team had these beautiful brand new machines. So I suggested to my previous boss, why doesn't he put it in his house to work from his remote thing? So I bring it to his house and he has a beautiful set out room. And the trouble with the PC was it was a mini tower. And what he had in his study was the desktop on which the monitor sat. And it just didn't fit. And he said, no, I don't want it. <laughs> oh, just because right? of the form factor. Yeah. So people have to visualize. If they can't visualize the product with their lifestyle or their self-image, even in politics, you don't vote for something that doesn't fit with your image of yourself. Right. So uh, along those same threads then, when when you're building your vision, how do you... How do you build it for consensus? So you got your own team that you're 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 sharing the vision with. You have the management uh, of your organization. They have to buy into the vision. Okay, you have right. customers. Okay, so 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 let's take a good example of Alan Mulally and the Boeing seven seven seven. Okay. I'm going to give you a couple of stories because this is where leadership comes in and empowerment comes in. Ah, okay. okay. So, so because it's a big capital project, you know, my old boss, Bill Murphy, um, in BT used to say, you can get anything to happen when you get the customer to say yes. Because yeah. that's the rallying cry. Yes. So, so, gotcha. Alan, so Alan Mulally, and well, before he came in, the, the team between Boeing and United Airlines at the lead customer agreed. So UA. United Airlines had a conceptual model of how it would fly, its economy, its range, how many people would be. And it went back to what are the journeys the customer are taking? Are they flying from main hubs? Are they going to be big? Right? So, right. so when they're coming up with that, so that first of all, but they didn't have everything worked out, you know, exactly which engine they were going to use. Now, in that, to achieve it, they had lots of leading-edge things. It was the first computer plane Boeing designed entirely on computer. Okay. Right, it was the first one to use composites, right? right. It was oh. going to be a two-engine plane, right? right? Because those innovations were required to meet the outcome of the goal. And you will see that there will be many different form factors and tested whether it's, and sometimes they're dead ends, whether it's the the Airbus A380 or Concorde. So your your vision may have had other political objectives like, like Concorde, but, you know, it was too noisy and it was too uh, polluting to actually get everybody's concern. So you may get people excited and then they find, actually, that's not really what I thought it was going to be about. Right. So you do have a lot of false uh, starts. You know, in the world, there are more failures than there are successes. Oh, absolutely. You know, you know one of my, my uh, when I became a manager early on, I had a very wise old man work for me. And he said, oh, Manoj, you know, you expect everything to succeed, but, you know, 90% of your effort is always wasted. And isn't that the truth, Martin? 
Oh, absolutely. Well, the thing is, I, I would take take issue with the wasted uh, because I don't think any effort is wasted. Yes, you, the you failures are absolutely necessary. Yes. Yeah, but the trouble is that when you get into political domain, particularly for leaders, your political capital is wasted if it's seen as a failure. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right? So, so it has to succeed. And in politics, there's a lot of flying kites and so on, you know. Um, well, that's where you champion your successes and you bury your, your failures. Your right? failures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so to go back to the issue, then the, the, the model is not only about selecting the right customer, as in the United Airlines, but there's another element within the leadership stuff, which is about sitting and explaining to employees and having lots of discussions. So they are involved in the discussion. And so that process has two elements. One is to get the employees to believe in themselves because you believe in them and then giving the credibility and the power. And that's what true empowerment is about because there are thousands of decisions made. I mean, if you've got 4 million parts in a, in a plane and 1.6 million lines of code, you think Alan Mulally is reviewing all of them? You know, it right. has to percolate down the layers. So you have to spend a lot of time having that discussion because whatever you think you say, is not what people hear. They will hear in their own thing. So there's a lot of conversation, which doesn't come out in a spec. Right. Spec is the end outcome of the consensus document. Right, of all the conversations and all the backdoor. Uh, right, and that's, and that's why when you use good tools, they explain the decisions in the background. So then if there is something that changes, you can go back to, oh, why did I decide to do that? Right, right, or or whatever you know, because remember your products like an operating system or an aircraft, or its version will be sitting around for forty, eighty, a hundred years sometimes. Fingers crossed. Hopefully, you know what I mean. Some particular version of it. Yes. Right? Yeah. Or at least the, if you did it right, the vision will be there. The product, how it how it is realized and implemented, might change with technology. Yeah, but the vision also changes because it builds on it. So the vision has to be original. You know, like okay, like, right. If you take the American Constitution, that was a vision on what they thought America was about. And today, we're we're still adding in most countries constitutions, but you know, the vision had to flex enough to care for gay rights and and uh, uh, other religions and so on. And if it doesn't, that system fails. Right, it, you know what I mean. So, so the robustness of it. Um, so, so, so they need to leave enough laxity that it it can't be so prescriptive about how people will live two hundred years from now. Okay, yeah, that, that, that all makes great sense. So, so you know, visions start everywhere, and and visions are bought in by other people because they can see it fits with the way they want to live. So you know there is a vision about what America is or Canada is or 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 you know and and we we tend to think countries last forever, but they don't yeah you know, whether it's Yugoslavia or whatever and and all those tensions pull them apart, and that happens in companies too about their directions and the product leadership you know imagine i mean if you go back to the time i'm sure you remember the war that was going on with within microsoft as to whether they should rewrite a new operating system with the internet or whether they should modify it 
Right. Yes. You, you know, so so if you think of companies and tribes, so you have a vision around which people gather, and they help it come true. And That's if right. they don't believe in it, then then the company doesn't grow. Right. So the my, my, the key takeaway I think from this, or for for me, I'm pulling out of this is that you know to to build that consensus around the vision is really about empowering and getting each level, uh, your team, management, customers, to really internalize that vision and and express it in terms of what it means to them, so that when they express that their own concept of that vision back as kind of a reflection back to to you you get this malleable vision that that evolves and kind and of becomes self defining yeah and they see where they fit in it right. so you know as as my lecture used to say you know i used to say why are we studying all these ideas and i said you have to be pregnant with the idea so you, if you think you just put an idea and everybody goes away they got to work it through themselves. And that's what takes the time, not the amount of time it takes to cut code. Right, exactly. Yes, it's, it's creating that, that, that right. uh, having, understanding the mission, right? And having it. Yes. The, yeah. the, and, then, and then to achieve it, what you do is you do lots of little experiments or sandbox to see, will this technique work or that will work, you know? Absolutely. And, and then sometimes you go back because the processes are always iterative. And some of them, some folks are dead ends. Mm-hmm. And some things don't and, scale. And, it looked like a yeah. great idea, you know, on one, but, you know, try and do it a million times or with a million different people, it just doesn't resonate. So you yeah. have to retool. Retool, right. So, I mean, that's where the whole concept of validating the idea, both for technical doability and market validation, before you try to scale. Right. Okay. You know, the trouble with too many people, and I've been there with clients where they have a vision and they start trying to scale without having tested it. Right. Yeah. Uh, Totally. (laughs) I've seen it and I've actually been involved and done it. Okay. And and usually what's happened is, uh, you know, sometimes people's concerns are real and it all depends on how risky it is. Mm-hmm. You know, so so the more the unknown, the more the need for sandboxing. And that's what you learn from things like NASA and breaking it into the Mercury program and the Apollo program. And, you know, they did it all one bite at a time. They didn't try to put the man in one go. You know, so so you, you bite, you know, you do your TikToks. You know, Intel's model is the TikTok. First, they get the new processor design, then they make it more efficient and fabricate it to a smaller size, you know. Or, yeah. you know, you first get your engine going and then you worry about the other parts getting replaceable. You don't try to do everything in one go. Absolutely. It's, it's, in, in, in the uh, Japanese terms, they use uh, Kazans. 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 And so those are just iterative uh, improvements. No, nothing huge. It's a small scale, twist the dial, make it run better. Okay, that's good. Write it up, goes into the process. Next Kazan comes along. And so everything's an iterative, very iterative approach until you got everything just running super smooth. Yeah, so so it, it depends on the magnitude, you know. Uh, but the main thing is the 
like every journey, the leadership and the energy comes with trying to lift the idea. The more new the idea is, you know, in soft systems thinking, they, there's a book I really loved on that thing. The name slips my mind. Um, but uh, it talks about, you know, your stage five rocket lift the idea up. And once it has momentum, it takes a lot less effort, but it's getting the damn thing off the ground. And that's where startups are good at doing. You know, and the right. lot of getting areas, the initial you know, lift, but not not uh, you know into the atmosphere, just off the ground. <laughs> yeah, off the ground, and and so that's where you you're trying to get your initial investors and your team, and the vision there, and and then you take it to the next and the next level and the next level. Yeah, kind of like Elon Musk's grasshopper. It's it's made it up, not not the atmosphere, not into the stratosphere, but you know it's off the ground and you know huge success. And, you know, the idea, the vision is there. Yeah. And, and you know, when you see somebody trying to do a stretch too far, that's when it fails and crashes. Right. Yeah. Terribly. And, and, and then there are other times when you need to understand the operating envelope. You know, like, like if you looked at it, Boeing, when it went for its 737 MAX, said... We don't want to develop a plane from scratch. Our customers will find it easy to buy if they don't have to retrain pilots. But they're back to that same square. Oh, we don't need to put extra electronics with sensors. right? And usually the first products tend to be over-engineered to survive those issues. Right? But, right. but, but you know, if you want to say, and now what do they have to do? FAA and all are saying, you need to train more of them. Right? Because we all underestimate the usability issues, right? Yes. I mean, and the more complex a product is, you know, Arthur C. Clarke used to have an expression of three levels of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, so you, you have, most people just want to know how to operate the light. Here's the on-off switch. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, if the light doesn't come on, you know, it's either the bulb is gone, the fuse is gone, or the switch isn't working, or there's no electricity, right? Second layer is the, the technician who needs to fix it. So if it goes wrong, he knows in his diagnostics these are things he needs to do. And it's then there's the person. It's test routine. So he has more knowledge than the guy who just wants to. So, you know, in this world where there are 10,000 objects from mobile phones and all, I mean, ask anybody, how does a mobile phone work? Uh, you can even go to doctors and ask them how some of the medicines work and they don't know it. And then there are the architects who have to have a deep knowledge of the principles to design the computer or whatever. But, you know, you don't have a million people designing PCs every day. Right. Yeah. Or, or rockets, right? And, and, Early on, the test pilot is a different type of creature to the operating pilot, right? He is better with understanding the model and the uncertainty. So you have the same issue when you're launching a product. Before you put it out in the field, you'll you'll give it to people to break it. Right. So when you have a, a when you're building a product that's complex and really most products when you understand their true nature are complex in themselves other than you know uh, you know a door hanger perhaps but most products today are yes, but if you, if, you, if you asked anybody what is the principle of gravity or stress to make the door 
handle or the door hanger work, they can't tell you, can they? Right. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. You know, you could go to a physicist and ask him, you know, what's the law of gravity? And, you know, there's a very funny book called Stress Analysis of Strapless Evening Gowns and other essays for <laughs> scientific age. And, and it, it makes fun about that. But, you know, I mean, that's why we have the term rocket scientist. But in every business, there is a rocket scientist who genuinely understands the science behind it, whether it is in marketing or whatever. And there's a bit of art and science and voodoo in it. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to peel away a little bit here is that little voodoo of taking a complex product or something that is truly complex from the engineering perspective. And how do you make that simple? You know, it's easy to grasp and boil it down to something that's salient, that uh, resonates and becomes, you know, part of the product vision, not a technical aspect. Look, every everybody talks and we're all in danger when we become techie. That we get into <laughs> yes. the features and how it works. Mm-hmm. And then you need somebody much simpler who kind of sums it up much, much simpler. Gotcha. I mean, whether you call it a politician or a salesman, you know, they have the art of, of understanding just enough to explain it to the customer. Just boiling it down to something you know, sound like. You know, what did Einstein say? You know, you need to be able to have somebody uh, being able to explain it to a six-year-old. So sometimes simplification is hard work, especially if you're technical, because you you chunk up into the language, right? Whereas you've got to then put it in the language of the other person. Yeah, and to me, I, I have a terrible time with that because, well... You know, if I don't explain it in the true details in which it is, then I feel like I'm not giving the true message. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, but, but that's also because you want them to enjoy it as much as you enjoyed it in yeah. its making and its construction and its its little quirks. Yes, you know what yeah. I mean? The nuances right. and subtleties and, oh, if you did this, it'll do this. <laughs> you know, and most people don't care. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so true. If you look at the average user of Facebook or TikTok or LinkedIn, right, you know, and and people will argue about how does the algorithm and LinkedIn work to allow you to share your thing, right? I mean, the reality tends to be what was, what is the purpose of LinkedIn, right? Or, Or the algorithm. It was to say, let's take away the editorial effort because normally the editor used to say this will be of interest to bigger people right right so a lot of stuff with ai or algorithms you know like the purpose of google's search engine and algorithm was to help you find the relevant information most easily you know what goes on page one versus what goes on page three right and and so they said the 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 item that crowdsource people. So its its original algorithm was a crowdsource algorithm. Yes, what, okay. what 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 people find most useful. Well, that reflects Joe Blog's average use. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, like you know uh, Jacob Nielsen says. Well, you only need five people to test it because they'll find most of the common faults. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, five diverse people. Five diverse. <laughs> five developers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, it depends on the granularity and it depends on the risk. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you're going to put a man on, on Mars, how many t- 
test do you want to do? You're not going to want to test with live people. You'll do millions of tests. And all the mistakes and dead ends tell you what not to do. So, you know, as it said, they're not failures. They're all collection of data on what does or doesn't work. Right. Yeah, just data points. Yes. So, when, when, when can you describe, I'm going to take a kind of a jump back to the design side of things um, and getting into the um, uh, developing consensus for the vision. Uh, can you help us understand a bit better the difference and purposes of user-centric design versus persuasive design? Those are two two different questions. Um, so which one would you like me to answer first? <laughs> well, okay, let's let's talk with user centric design and and let's have uh, you know what's your feelings on that. Okay, um, user centric design was largely about common sense making it easy. Okay, right. You know, um, so that's the, kind of what we've been talking about. Is yeah, and, and a lot of salient points. Yeah, so when you went back to Jacob Nielsen's The Design of Everyday Things, what's the least information I need to be able to operate this? And what cues can I give? And we moved away from that. So, you know, old web pages used to have the blue highlighter, which was the equivalent of a handle on a door telling you to push it down and pull it towards you, or a plate telling you to push it away from you, right? And you combine that further to say fire exit should always push out because when you're in a crisis, you move forward. So the more you understood human nature, the more you designed around those issues in simplistic use terms. But in persuasive terms, you are sitting down and using, uh, you may have ulterior motives, either for the good of the customer or for your own good. If it's largely for your own good, you call it dark patterns. Dark patterns. Right. So, so the dark pattern would be, I don't make it easy for you to call the helpline. Right. Okay. Or I, I to get a refund. Okay. So that's so that's the dark right. patterns were would be instead of introducing um, something that supports or makes the life better, it's introducing something to make life more hard, so that the customer doesn't do it. Yeah, yeah. You see, look, there's two elements. One has to do with the pleasure of novelty. Okay. So, so if you discover a feature and it does something nice, but it wasn't obvious, but you discover it, you have the same joy as a child opening a puzzle. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And then you even want to go and share it. Do you want to show, hey, this wasn't obvious, but look, I could open this. Right? But if you... And the other end tends to be nudges. So you sit down and, and you're actually going right down into the dopamine levels to to create nudges. So default choice is like, you know, should you, and you can use it for good or for evil. So a default choice might make you unwittingly buy an insurance policy to a right. product. And then the regulation comes and says, hey, that wasn't a clever thing to do. That's not fair, right? Right. Whereas an ethical nudge might be to make you, when you are signing up, default that you are already putting money into your pension plan because it's deemed for your good. Right, okay. Right? But, but you're taking it past just that usability level. And, and it's, it's, 
it's being a bit more prescriptive and a bit more and a lot of elements therefore are designed to make the product sellable right so when you go into something for aesthetics um, or or whatever right you yeah. are are designing so w- when you have more competition then you want the whole thing to be more persuasive so if you look at netflix and persuasion you know they will change the picture that you see you know the the picture that pops up depending on the audience okay i ha- i haven't noticed that but yeah, but you won't because it's oh, of you. course, because I'm, I'm, I'm the one audience. It. <laughs> oh, yeah, true, true enough. Right. So, 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 to make it more sellable or whatever, right? And it goes back to novelty and using the right images, and so on, because they know that they want to keep you hooked in, and so on. Uh, but, but, you know, they're, they're subtle things that are affecting at a psychological because they want you there. So, you know, whether it's making it easy to enroll by giving you uh, uh, one month free and knowing you'll forget to renew it. Right. right. Those are persuasive techniques. They're not I, I'd usability almost, techniques. You know, that, that particular technique, uh, would, wouldn't that slide into a dark pattern? Because, uh, you know, it's questionable ethics and, uh, you know... It, well, 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 you you have very extreme products where some subscription things are very high priced. You know, you you might go and join, you know, Facetune or something, and suddenly you find it's a thirty pound tune, and that was never the original value or whatever. And companies also go through the process that, you know, uh, I mean, this the whole issue of you know Elon Musk having to go back because somebody accidentally bought some features is no different to, you know, and he realized that that, that was not a good thing. And yeah. he had to change it. Is no different to when, when Apple went out and kids were buying 500 pounds worth of software unbeknownst to their parents till the bill arrived. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those were the early days of um, uh, the data plans. And- well, well, you see, it goes back to the ethics issue. Look, yeah. I'll give you an example, right? One of my old bosses was a chap called David Finch, and I was very good at cost-cutting ideas and so on. So one change that I did changed the rounding in the invoicing system. And you're seeing a lot of companies do it. Yeah. And and David said, okay, if it's below th- this amount, round down, and if it's above half a cent, round up. Okay, which was an ethical thing to do because in swings and roundabouts, it was fair. You know, right. Whereas the previous system always rounded down. Okay. And, and yeah. you know, that, that immediately made a shitload of money by 1%. And sometimes when there's enough volume, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Then I went to him because I was an accountant then. And I said, oh, you know, we give away all the staff. They can drink as much milk because it was a milk business, you know, turned over 250 million a year. But one of the perks in every company is, whether it's the airline, you give away stuff for free. Some of your own products, of course. Well, you see, there's a dual thing. One is they feel positive about it. Secondly, it stops theft. (laughs) Because if you can get so much for free, there should be no reason for you to steal. You know, like in paint business, you'd give away 50 liters a year. That's more than enough paint at, at 10 cents for you to buy it. 
right? And, yeah. and if you were, but you know, if you were taking a hundred or two hundred, it was clearly not for personal use, and it was absolutely you starting a little scheming business on the side. Right. So, so I went and we used to say you could drink as much milk on the premises. And when I tallied it up, it was a lot, right? Um, you know, because you have thousands of people. So I said, why don't we give them semi-skim milk? And David said, that's not fair or right. The people will object to it. And you have seen companies mm-hmm. when they go down this cross-cutting route. Yeah. There'll be more animosity when something is taken away from people. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so the heart and ethics of not seeming to screw people, customers or employees. And, and even when companies take advantage of tax schemes, you know, it's not that Google or uh, Apple and all aren't full of clever people, but eventually what happens is it will generate an animosity because you have to be a positive force in your community. Right. And so if it's seen as, okay, fine, you, 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 you helped a couple of startups because it was good, but actually you withheld three million pounds and billion pounds in taxes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so and that's the, 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 the that whole aspect to dark patterns. I mean, personally, I, I, I really... So, so, it, 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 so what happens is if the company understands its values and all, the junior employees who might have made that decision, and right. that was the point I was trying to get to, you know, if I'm sitting with the finance director and he teaches me these ethics, then it becomes part of the culture and the storytelling. And every time I tell somebody, it's... It percolates. Otherwise, everybody's trying to get one over on each other, and soon you you end up with millions of these dark patterns. Right. You know. You know, like like you know, I'll charge people to go in a toilet. Well, you got them hostage, so they'd be prepared to pay any price. <laughs> right, which is a horrible dark pattern, and you know, senior guys should squash that idea. Right. So you're right. You're, so, you're kind of relying on the ethics of of management to squash the bad ideas and let the or to teach service. it to people so that when they are designing or implementing, right. Yeah, and it goes there every day when you deal with customer service, when there's a, a bill inquiry or whatever, right? Right. You know, and that's if, that if feedback the, loop, right? It's that I, feedback loop that we talked about. Yes, I mean, people will make mistakes, but how you deal with them goes into your culture, right? And how you build that or react and you respond to your customer. You know, Elon Musk being a, a true leader in, in, you know, that, that regard. Yeah, yeah. So, so and then what happens is that other people learn, well, that's how the boss thinks. So let's not deal with it the next time. Yeah, exactly. Right? Let's not have those questionable, yeah. ethical, you know, ideas. Let's truly be a visionary. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so usability and customer service work the same way. Because when you make your front interface and you make it easy to do business, it's the same thing as if the person was serving the person, right? Right. Absolutely. So, so you yeah, know, people on the front so, line. So it usability, what do you call it, service design or whatever, is part of uh, enabling self-service. But it, it shouldn't be designed to offload the effort. So when we started a lot of issues with 
uh, zero touch and self-service. The aim was not to displace it by putting the burden on right. the, the end user. It was actually because it was easier for them to do it. Yes, yeah. Okay. Right, so... so Whereas very often with governments and all, it puts the onus back for you to file your tax returns and so on. And all it's done is dump the work on you rather than make it easy for you. Mm-hmm. So, so usability, customer service are all of those kind of things. Right. And I hopefully, you know, with with that kind of feedback loop, you, you trim down the... Uh, you know, the impact of those dark patterns and truly looking at the, the, the win-win-wins, right? So it's good yeah. for the customer, good for the business, and good for you. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and sometimes it's just plain naivety of technical people. So, you know, if you look at, for example, you make a screen in a car. And that's where the sat-nav is. But if you then want to change the air conditioning, like I had that problem uh, last year when I went to California, I rented a Jeep. So it had this nice, shiny interface thing. But you're driving down the motorway looking at the sat-nav and you want to change the temperature and the screen bloody changes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, you know, so so there's, there's, there's got to be a bit of, of you. And, and that's where, you know, it goes back to that simplicity stuff. Put yourself as a naive user rather than a techie person. Yes. And you'll understand that issue. So usability, serviceability, UX, dark patterns, it's a complicated area. Yes, very. And and, and as you build your culture, you get better at it. So how would you, say you've got a new product or, you know, one that uh, you're enhancing a product, or how how would you generate interest for a a new product versus an old product? Okay, It, it, it it follows the same line, Martin, as... Ideas need to be socialized. People don't buy something new right away. Okay. Sometimes what happens is it's in the system and then it's obvious, right? So films will typically launch three months before with a trailer. So in their persuasive persuasion model, when you see it, it's not new. Okay. And so whether it's also the film star and, and the fact that it's Bond, 27 or 29 <laughs> makes it easier but so whether you're in a technical product you launch it in comdex and cex but what you might initially be doing is first testing you know like like you you, you see this new little selfie drone thing and that that's been out for for years yes and the early adopters you must have seen it there but you know now it's at ces so it's ready for the mass market and they've brought the price point down and they've improved it so Normally, the early adopters like the fact and they're prepared to put up with it being difficult or awkward. You know, right. so, so Apple doesn't make bleeding edge products. Right. Yeah, they're, right? they're, they're waiting for a, a, the majority to, to, to jump in. Yeah, it's the early majority. But it so the status does tend to go with that, and it also makes it easier so they don't have so many product recalls, and so they don't end up in the same problems as Samsung with their very thin phone or their folding phone. They said, Let somebody else make the mistake, right? It's more important to be perceived as being leading edge in high tech 
in the mass market than it is to be seen as as being bleeding edge. So, you know, there's a very fine line. Yes. Okay. So, you know, if you think about it, the people that wanted to buy the original Tesla Roadster, he didn't go for the whole thing. Those people were prepared. You know, they weren't depending it on as their day-to-day car. Right. Yes. And if it had a problem, you know, like it's it's the joke about if you drive the Ferrari too slowly, the the carbon plugs would, you know, it's yeah. part of the grief of 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 it being high maintenance because it's like wearing a white uniform. You know, it takes more effort to clean it. High status yeah. is often associated with actually high cost of maintenance. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? So so or sometimes you, it comes be a little bit of use. Okay, so so have I shared my perspective properly oh, there? Absolutely, um, and I think we're coming to towards the end, Manoj. So, um, in in wrap up, what would you say would be the key piece of advice uh, to ensure your products have a cohesive and compelling vision? Pick the right product leader. The leadership, right? So, so the leader will sell it. He will bring people together. He'll make it happen. Now, there may be side effects. You know, Steve Jobs, when he started, may not have been the most amicable person, but, you know, in a smaller company and and in that thing, it you know, today it probably wouldn't fly. You what know? an awesome way to, to, to really wrap this whole technical conversation up with coming down to people, right? It's all about getting the right person in the right place, and you know that that person having the ability to communicate, convey that vision, and then and that person is is off a time. So sometimes you can have people with visionary leadership, but the time isn't right. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and and you know, or they can't find the right people because they're in the wrong stuff. So you may actually have idea. You know, like ideas sometimes bounce around. In many iterations before, I mean, I want you to go back and look up a lot of the ideas that are now surfacing in in our current iteration that were actually around during the dot-com, but they were just too early. Right, yep. You know, ah. the, 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 right. So, so sometimes, and ideas are also contemporized. You know, take a good example, right? And I'll share this with you. You've seen that film, Dirty Rotten Scoundrel. Yes, yeah. Okay, what's the latest version of that? If you go to Netflix, the female version, I think it's called The Hustle or The Hustler, the the script is practically the same, but it's cast with the women being the con people rather than Michael Caine and Steve Martin. Okay, yeah, yeah. When you watch it, you're looking at... Slight variation on on the original design. Right, so so you know, like like in the film industry, they always say there's forty standard themes or whatever. So you you have this thing that sometimes ideas are co- constantly recontemporized, whether it's the Mission Impossible film or whatever. So you know, it happens in software too. Yeah, you know, like 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 if you look at AI, AI, uh, I mean, it's been around for ages. And it goes back to the, you know, you could argue that somebody has a dream to recreate man in his own shadow. It's, it's the God complex. But a lot of AI is just 
understanding the thought process of people and replicating to automate it. So that if you had to write it in an old expert system, it would take you forever to do that. Absolutely. That has been a, uh, a good wrap to the conversation. Absolutely. Uh, I want to thank you, Manoj. Thank you so much for all your, your input and help throughout these uh, these days and years. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and uh, hear all about uh, all, of, all, all of your exciting business opportunities and things that are going on and all your help. I love it. Thanks so much, Manoj. All right. Look forward to it. Talk Take to care, you Mark. soon. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to The Art of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.